Welcome everybody to the season finale of Re-Engage, where four middle-aged something or others re-watch their beloved TNG. We think back to how the episodes first hit us and how they resonate with us today. I'm joined by my usual cultural bridge officers, uh, Mr. Greg Tito, uh, Mr. Eric Gratton, and one Ms. Kate Yeager. Kate, how you do? I'm good. Uh, you called me middle-aged, and while that is technically correct, it still hurts. <laughs> Stung. Well, I'm only middle-aged, Kate, if I lived to 100. So I'm probably just old. <laughs> but other than that, I'm doing just fine. Thank you. Sorry for that, Kate. Eric, how are you? I'm at least two-thirds of the way through, if I'm honest with myself. So uh, middle-aged is kind of kind to me. It's I figure it's like like you say, Jimmy, it's all about how soon the end comes That's as to right. where the middle falls. Uh, anyway, here we are. I'm glad to be here on Thursday night with my good friends. <laughs> Eric Tito, in the dark, what? how are you? I'm Eric Tito today, and are I am... Uh, very excited that we got through an entire season. I, it, it's, it's amazing. 25 episodes is nothing to sneeze at. It's very cool. That's what the South, the, you know, the Southern musicians call it, right? The nothing to sneeze at. That's a that's an adage. <laughs> yeah, it true. is. Does uh, it yes. have to be a Southern musician to say it's nothing to sneeze at? Yeah. Because <laughs> I got to put something on my resume. That's it. That's, For some I'm reason, I kept thinking that, that you could play that part, Eric. I don't know why. As I was watching this. Oh, shit, yeah. I nailed yeah. it. That's just playing my grandpa. <laughs> All right. So, like I said, this is the season finale of Reengage, the season finale of Star Trek Season 1, The Neutral Zone, show 126. Uh, it aired on May 16th, 1988. Uh, some of the happenings around that time in the world. Uh, we have the U.S. Surgeon General C. Everett Coop reports that nicotine is as addictive as heroin. How come so, we don't know who the U.S. Surgeon General is all the time? I, I knew C. Everett Koop. I saw his face. I have that, like, you know. that funny no mustache beard thing going right. on. Right. That really sticks with you. It's because was he on posters where he was saying this while pointing at you, being like, nicotine is as addictive as heroin? I mean, oh. his name was on, I believe, the packaging, you know, when it was, I mean, it was clearly by warning of the Surgeon General is how the, it has to be on the packaging now. I don't remember if it was while he was Surgeon General that that particular thing happened mm. too, but it was super interesting. Uh, but I agree. I, I absolutely am not sure who the Surgeon General is now, and that's awful, but I certainly remember the name C. Everett Coop. It's not Anthony Fauci? <laughs> no, he's head of the, he's, oh. Yeah, I know. <laughs> All right. Also going on uh, May 15th, the USSR, still a thing, begins withdrawing its uh, about 115,000 troops out of Afghanistan. So very much like uh, Vietnam, when the French withdrew, we were like, wait a minute. That might be something we can win. <laughs> we being the U.S. Uh, and now, uh, what, 20 years into a war, we're realizing that maybe... Uh, it's too big of a fight for us as well. We didn't uh, learn also, from Russia's mistakes. It's crazy. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and then on May 16th, the U.S. Supreme Court rules trash may be searched without a warrant. So they can Huge. go through your garbage. You know what? Changed my uh, life. 
I'm going to need to go for just a hot second. Um, <laughs> no reason. Don't worry about it. <laughs> no reason. Don't worry about what you hear either. <laughs> Just I raccoons. feel like this is such a trope in so many like detective stories now, uh, or you know that people go through trash before him. But did that just not happen before? Or was it was it not legally protected before this day? That's that's the crazy thing. Well, as a Supreme Court scholar, <laughs> yes, <laughs> let me say that I believe it was just something that hadn't been definitively settled. So that it, there were people arguing kind of both sides that it was private property still and then it, then it wasn't. And then at this point, it became settled case law. So well, let's not look into it any deeper than that. It's answered. Yes. Let's move on. Done and done. I'd love to read the dissent on that one, though. <laughs> <laughs> My Fuck trash it. is sacrosanct. <laughs> Uh, all right, so our Nielsen rating is 10.2. I honestly don't know what that means. Kate, maybe you can <laughs> illuminate. Is that a good number or a For bad the number? Son of a bitch. Uh, it is good, actually. Uh, it's, it's, it's anything that was in the tens was good mm. for this first season. I absolutely love that Kate's just the only one <laughs> who has absolutely synthesized what the meaning of the Nielsen numbers right. are. So we just go back to her week after week instead of learning it ourselves. No, I a, think there's a metaphor to be learned in that. She's the Nielsen expert. And why step on her toes? Uh, in music, Anything for You by Gloria Estefan in the Miami Sound Machine, Kate. Anything for you that you're not here since you said we're through seems like years. Oh, that is such a good song. Mm. Mm. The 80s were such a fantastic time for and the bands, too. Like and the Miami Sound Machine is a terrific and the band and, and the revolution the, and, the, and the revolution was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, uh, Elvis Costello had two of them. Like, there were some great and the bands all the way through there. Barney Good had point. and friends. Yes, but that's not an and the. That's just an and band. Oh, you know, shit. I, I, it's, mm. not, it's not terrible. Although, uh, Eric, I think it might be and Miami Sound Machine. I don't know that it's the Ooh. Miami Sound Machine. Oh, yes, it might I be. There, right. it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful uh, secondary genre that I, that I quite enjoy as well. Good catch. I would like to nice. go see the Miami Sound Machine and actually have it be like this huge machine with lots of knobs. There's like DJs trapped inside of it and they're making the music inside the Miami <laughs> Sound Machine. Because that's the image my like eight-year-old brain had when I heard that name for the first time. As someone who used to cook for a lot of touring bands, I will tell you that a lot of them are full of knobs. I don't know in particular <laughs> whether the Miami Sound Machine was. Hey yo. All right. And uh, because of this particular episode, one character uh, in this episode, we also should look at the number one country song, which is I'm Gonna Get You. By Eddie Raven. Kate, I know you went out of your way for me on this one. Let's I hear it. did. I looked this song up and it has uh, really good stalker lyrics. Uh, I'm going to get you. You're going to love me. No doubt about it. I'm going to get you. Oh, my Whoa. God. <laughs> that totally is stalker music. I, mean, I love it. That's right there with the police song. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Think, but it's a couple years before I want to sex you up. So, it, <laughs> it, you know, it's a continuum. Yeah, that's true. Although I want to sex you up, he says something about I want to make you my wife. 
Well, that so at least he's trying to court her. She wants to be the wife. That's true. Still stalkery. <laughs> All right. TikTok, you know. Stop, stop. <laughs> Too hard. All right. So the number one movie was uh, Friday the 13th, part seven, The New Blood. And interesting enough, uh, this episode's own Peter Mark Richmond will actually go on to star in part eight, Jason Takes Manhattan. The man is a legend. A legend. I'm, we'll get to that in just a minute. Because there's a there's a bunch, a few of these uh, guest stars that really have contributed to the canon of TV, especially from the 50s oh, yeah. on. Um, so in the news, uh, Kate told me she went down a rabbit hole uh, regarding C. Everett Coop. Kate, why don't you uh, lay that on us? Well, I was just reading about C. Everett Coop saying that it was as addictive as heroin and remembering how much it was sort of, you know, the anti-smoking was starting in the late 80s. And I thought, how late was it that we were able to smoke on airplanes? And it was actually this year, 1988, was the first year that American uh, or that airlines in America banned smoking on domestic flights over two hours uh, or sorry, under uh, two hours. Under two hours. And then uh, it wasn't until 1990 that uh, it was less than six hours was banned. And uh, it just made me remember how terrible it was to fly when we were children and how they just stuck us in these little aluminum tubes of death. And we were expected to walk through the smoking section because there was, you know, a non-smoking section in an enclosed space. So (laughs) fucking smart. It's like having a peeing section in a swimming pool. It just doesn't work that way. (laughs) <laughs> That's the rabbit hole. <laughs> that is a very funny and amazing rabbit hole. Thank you <laughs> for taking us down there. That's okay, so this episode is star date four one nine eight six point zero, and it occurred to me after twenty five episodes, I don't understand star dates at all. It's like <laughs> Bitcoin; it baffles my mind, and I think it's the point. The first part of it is okay, but I don't know that I would ever know when holidays fall based on the point. Like, is it point seven that it's Christmas this year, or is it point five? It's the fraction that really gets me confused. D- do you guys grasp the start date, or is this uh, just universally nonsensical? Universally nonsensical. I think even we pointed out early on that the first two digits of the start date denote the season of Star Trek that they're in. It actually has nothing to do with the actual time, right? Didn't that? Didn't yeah, we it's discuss something that? like that? But it doesn't jive with this with the four. But yeah, it was something similar to that. So I'm right. It's just nonsensical. So it's not me. <laughs> it's them, and that's always my favorite answer. And I thought the um, the point whatever was the time of day divided into tenths instead of twenty fours. Right, that makes it so much easier to grasp. Yeah, right? well, not for us, but I do. I still think it's super interesting that they've gone to a decimal system for time, which makes but, but sense to not be in, in a, a base twelve system. But anyway, I th- thought it was super interesting. And they, that actually comes up in this episode too, doesn't that? Someone say like point two, like like pointedly, like as if yes. we were supposed to like that was supposed to mean something to us. Thanks, Captain Picard. Yes, the difference in when uh, they first meet the Romulans, you hear that date, and then Data brings in a very specific date, so that you know, and that's the point too. So you get a sense of this is exactly how long it's been. 
Um, all right, so we got uh, our cast and crew, director James L. Conway, uh, Charm, Smallville, and The Magicians are some of his credits. Um, the television and teleplay is by Maurice uh, Hurley from the Equalizer fame in Baywatch Nights, and he did 30 episodes of TNG. So he is deep into the TNG uh, canon. And uh, what's really interesting about this episode in uh, particular is the storyline of the, um, the, the, the found American citizens who are frozen is actually from some fan fiction by Deborah McIntyre and Mona Glee. Uh, so they took this off of, of maybe the best TOG episode, Space Seed. And for people who don't know immediately what Space Seed was, uh, that introduced us to Khan. Uh, and we get to see Ricardo uh, Montalban sink his teeth into one of the best Star Trek villains. Uh, and certainly, I think, one of the best TOG episodes and one of the best Star Trek the movie um uh, entries into the movie franchise. Uh, so T O T O G or T O S, right? Oh, T O S. Sorry, T O S. Yes. I'm like T O S. T O G. It's all. I mean, I wrote it as T O G, so I was wrong from the beginning. <laughs> and Which as an I actor, you can only say what's written in front of you. It's saving grace for me. Uh, all right. So, well, Con, that's Leon Rippy. I mean, if you're talking about saving grace, I mean, he was one of the stars of the TV show Saving Grace. Really? Um, but we'll get to that. Yeah. We're going to re-engage with Saving right Grace after this. You can't, you can't walk away from that transition. Leon Rippey, Eric, please. Let's talk I about I want to talk about Leon Rippey, yes. one of the great character actors of the last several decades. Uh, just, I wrote, I wrote fucking brilliant, but my notes say ducking brilliant because we all know the world we live in. Um... <laughs> Like I say, Saving Grace is not a show that I watched often, but when I did, I was struck by the ridiculousness of Earl the Angel, as played by Leon Rippey. Dude is unbelievable. The Patriot, which was not a great film, but some great performances, and really the introduction of Jason Isaacs to the mm -hmm. American audience uh, is what it's mostly remembered for. But Leon played one of the great Minutemen in that one. Again, a standout. And the one that I know Jimmy's super into and wants to talk about as well is the saloon owner, Tom Nuttall, the competing saloon owner, that kind of tent uh, in Deadwood for all three seasons and the movie. Right? And the movie. Yep. Unbelievably fantastic. What do you think about him? Jimmy? Uh, he's absolutely brilliant. He, all his lines are just perfectly delivered. And when, when I was watching Deadwood, I remember thinking this is as close to Shakespeare as I think. Television has gotten because you you had to listen to the words. Um, you couldn't just watch action. Like if, if you weren't listening to what was being said, you missed ninety percent of what was happening. Uh, and it was just weird dialogue that, like everybody sounded a little smarter uh, just because they were using these big words. And in there's one particular scene uh, in an episode where he does his bike riding and he he gets a bicycle. Uh, and this is a new contraption and he's showing it off and people are making fun of him because they don't think it'll last. And he takes on a bet that he can ride it down the, the streets of uh, Deadwood. And anyone who doesn't believe he can is a willing cocksucker. <laughs> and, and it's great because he says that at the beginning of it. And then at the end, after this long diatribe of like all the. The, the reasons for the bet are like the, the things you can't do to the bed and things that need to be addressed to make the bets uh, safe. Everyone starts to go and he ends it again and he can't think of anything 
So he defaults back to, and if you disagree, then you're a willing cocksucker. <laughs> and it's uh, a perfectly delivered line. It was hysterical. I love this guy. Well, I mean, a lot of the, the dialogue in that was, you know, consciously uh, iambic pentameter and the, the most of the soliloquies are as well. Like, it, it is meant to be super Shakespearean. And that's why, uh, you know, Mr. Rippey, who was uh, a very big uh, theater performer, uh, you know, founded several theaters throughout the U.S., did a lot of regional theater uh, and was a circus performer for a while, like cowboy for a while. Super interesting dude. Just one of those Hollywood careers. Just what a pleasure to watch. I, m- I missed it. Which character he played. So I. He was the, the country. Sonny. I can't. Yeah. Sonny. Oh, Sonny. Okay. Yeah. Thank Sonny you. Clemens. Thank you. In, now, and... in retrospect, I appreciate it more. <laughs> well he's delightful if, if you like uh, go back and look at the films of roland emmerich and you'll see yeah. you'll see leon rippey in most of them no he's fantastic uh, he he, yeah, yeah. he just chews the scenery at every opportunity in this episode and it's just i am a big fan of all three of them actually uh for very different reasons i'm excited to learn more yeah, let's crack it open. Uh, so, well, let's stick with those three first, then, before we get to um, our Romulan visitors. So uh, we have Gracie Harrison, who played Claire Raymond. She's the uh, the lady who was awakened. Um, some of her credits are Designing Women, Family Ties, and Roseanne. And interesting, her last credit goes way back, at least in IMDb, and that was the John Larroquette show. Mm-hmm. Did you find else, anything else about her, Eric, that we should know? Uh, not particularly. I, I saw that there were about 26 good credits. It was a lot of neat mm. stuff. Like you say, Designing Women, uh, the John Larroquette show, uh, I believe Hill Street Blues, um, really just kind of uh, fell off after that. You know, Family Ties. Uh, had a lot of connections to other uh, actors in the Star Trek universe. Had worked with many of them. Uh, and was particularly terrific in this. I I was actually surprised the character wasn't featured more because of the intro that she got in the mm. um, in the shuttle. Mm. But uh, she's terrific in it and holds her own with everybody she's on screen with. Yeah, I love what I love about her performance here is that it's so like the 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 because of the family ties and all the stuff we talked about. Like she is that like adult woman in the eighties, like, and she plays that so well and. It immediately almost feels like, oh yeah, we're just going back to those like sitcomy kind of uh, of mm. days uh, growing up. So yeah, she yeah, that's a good never point. goes too far into the sci-fi e of like you know even when she's fainting or, or or upset of what she's experiencing, it's all grounded in what you would think the you know Yankee and King Arthur's court would do. You know, yeah, that's a great point about uh you know a mom. Uh, a soccer mom who gets frozen in time and wakes up in the future and everything's very spacey. And, uh, you know, that, that was really cool to see somebody display the mom and not, you know, she wasn't a, uh, a science officer or a, a scientist or a doctor or something. She's like, she's a mom. Well, uh, I mean, they all played their archetypes, right? So, you know, yes. you have the, the country bumpkin, you have the, the maternal caring person, and then you have the, the capitalist vulture. Yeah, and uh, they they relied on the actors to give them uh, breadth and depth, and I think they did. Speaking of, I mean, it's just it's it's central casting, right? Like they did an excellent job, and particularly with this next one that you're about to talk uh, about. Yeah. Like yeah. I hate him so much, and I love him so much. <laughs> yeah. Like I hate that I love him, and I love that I hate him. 
Oh, well, so and at many- this point, I mean, we're talking Peter Mark Richmond, and at this point, he was also on Dallas, so the mm. audience would have been familiar <laughs> with hating him. Uh, and it's kind of terrific. They they gave him a character that is familiar to him at this point as well. He's basically playing the same character, a titan of industry uh, that is suddenly 20, what, uh, suddenly 350 years later. Yeah. Uh, completely positive that his law firm is still around. It's great. What a fantastic uh, character for him to play. And I think what a great bit of casting to uh, kind of play off uh, what what uh, visibility he already had in, in the kind of current zeitgeist. It's just terrific. But he, you know, I mean, what a career. All the way back to the 40s, you know, wow. he... Uh, uh, he was in my dad's favorite movie of all time called Friendly Persuasion, directed by William Wyler and starring just an incredible cast. He, he plays a Union soldier who tries to recruit Anthony Perkins, uh, uh, who is particularly wonderful in this movie. Uh, the parents are Gary Cooper and Dorothy McGuire. Marjorie Maine, one of the great comedians in, in film history, plays this fantastic widow with three daughters that she's trying to marry off. It's incredibly stereotypical and perhaps misogynistic, but she is so good. Um, and he was in Jason Takes Manhattan, as Jimmy mentioned earlier. Very, very important. And uh, just a couple of years after this, I think. Uh, yeah. Uh, but and it's interesting you don't bring up that he was in three episodes of Three's Company, which is amazing alliteration. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you don't want to do four. That just fucks the whole thing up. No. Yeah, no. three is what you do. He he just passed away not long ago. Yeah, January. And, uh, yeah, and his son Lewis is a film and television score conductor. He does. Uh, he conducts scores for films, including such things as Seven, as good as it gets. Um, uh, just several, several of the big ones that you've heard of, and now also conducts the symphony in one of my favorite towns in the world, Bangor, Maine. Excellent. All right. Wow. Well, yeah. let's uh, let's meet our uh, other two big uh, guest stars who play the Romulans. We have Mark Alemo. Uh, he did four episodes of TNG, thirty-five episodes of Deep Space Nine. He was also in Total Recall, Tango, and Cash. Uh, he played Commander, is it Tabak? 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 Uh, so really, this guy is a big part of the Star Trek canon. This is the first time we get a taste of what Absolutely. he has to offer. Gold Ducat in the house. That is, okay, I was wondering, what, I'm, he probably played a Cardassian. That was, I was guessing if he yep, was going to. The first Cardassian in uh, Star Trek history uh, was good old Mark Alamo. Uh, he played three or four different characters in mm-hmm. Next Generation throughout, which is nice, uh, including what's the one he does on the holodeck with Data. He's like one of the poker buddies at some point or some shit like that. When he plays another um, Cardassian in TNG, right? I don't know. I don't remember. I know he plays another um, Romulan. Uh, oh, uh, yes, that might this, be it. His, his film work in the 80s is really something you got to look up. I mean, he did the Deadpool uh, with uh, Clint Eastwood and a very young Jim Carrey, of course. Things like The Last Starfighter. One of my favorite Neil Simon scripts of all time seems like old times with Chevy Chase oh. and uh, Goldie, Hawn. Goldie Hawn and T.K. Carter. Just fantastic. But then you're right. You said Tango and Cash. Total Recall. Um 
just really a terrific career that 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 uh, continued into 2020 with Grizzly to the Revenge, which you bet I'm going to go take a look. At. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I just love the way you phrased that when you said uh, the last Starfighter, one of your favorite Neil Simon scripts, and I was like, oh, I didn't realize he wrote that. <laughs> You didn't know, did you? Didn't you know no you idea. did sci-fi before. It was yeah. cool. Uh, and then that takes us to our other Romulan, Anthony James, Sub-Commander T? Ty? Uh, I don't know how to pronounce that name, but this guy has had a crazy long career. I'll let Eric dive into a lot of these roles that he did. The one thing I'll bring up is in his bio, how he retired from acting and became an artist and started to have his his paintings uh, on display in New York and Chicago and some of the other big cities. So another one of the Star Trek uh, actors who transitioned into another whole career that blossomed as well. But Eric, hit us up with this guy because he has... A pretty amazing list. Oh, of it's, stuff. it's incredible. Yes, I mean one of the, one of the things that they make sure to talk about in everything that you read about him is that his first major film and his last major film were mm. both nominated for best pictures in the Heat of the Night in 1967 and Unforgiven yes. in 1992. Mm. And even if that's the only thing you ever do, I mean, you ever do, you got a name character in those two movies. That is something to be incredibly proud of. And then all the way through, you have genre perf- per- just perfection from this guy, just westerns and and like uh, low budget um, uh, action in the seventies with things like Vanishing Point. Oh my God, Vanishing Point! Tick tick tick. Um, uh, the Culpepper Cattle Company is one of my favorites. If you can track that down, High Plains Drifter, mm-hmm. Burnt Offerings. You get into horror and like one of the great seventies horror. Uh, Return from Witch Mountain, which I saw a thousand times as a kid, you know. Then you, you know, you get into some some kind of lower budget stuff like Soggy Bottom USA in 1981. <laughs> if you can track that shit down, I highly recommend it. Super low budget horror, super interesting. Uh, Blue Thunder uh, in 1983, starring um, uh, Roy Scheider. Yes, Roy Scheider. Uh, about about the helicopter. Oh, again, you you just got to track down some of these. Like mid-level, uh, crazy genre movies that will make you just happy. The, the the cinematography in all of these is done with care. The uh, soundtracks are all crazy and weird. And these are just some of my favorite movies ever made. Right up through like Slow Burn and Naked Gun 2.5, right before he stopped doing movies. Like what a weird and awesome career. And... Starred in Poison's 1988 music video, Fallen Angel. Let's leave it with that. <laughs> Amazing. All right. The whole other long list of uh, character actors that I didn't even bother to crack open. Is there anybody that you want to acknowledge other than who we were talking about, Eric? I mean, I that's all I really paid much attention to because I have a lot of stuff that I bet we want to talk about with the episode. But yeah. Again, what a great job casting. Terrific. Long-running very skilled actors in the guest and co-star roles. And it put all everybody right. so, on their A-game too. Like I feel like because there was all of this, you know, not necessarily royalty, but like, you know, people who have been around the block a few times coming to this set, it felt like the the production and the acting was was at like an extra level. So yeah, let's get to it. Yeah, it really let's get to it. It start to feel like a second season episode. Uh, so before we unpack it, there's four little things that I took from the uh, Star Trek companion book by... Uh, Larry uh, Nemesek. So the first one 
Um, you may have noticed as Riker walks into the turbo lift to go and uh, start babysitting the three uh, Frosties that there's a, a, a longer than usual close up of a lady in a very short skirt walking down the ramp. Uh, this was purposeful and it was actually uh, this she's not even an actor she's a writer um her name is susan sackett and she was actually jor um she was uh i was gonna say george r, r. martin <laughs> she was gene, gene roddenberry's uh personal assistant um for most of her career from 1974 to 1991 uh and she won this walk-on role as a bet for how much weight she could lose. So she got to do oh. a whole walk-on role. I don't know the circumstances of that. That's just all that was written. It was a bet about losing weight. It kind of fits in with the whole uh, Gene Roddenberry thing that we've sort of come to understand from uh, this season. She does contribute two episodes. One we've already seen and talked about. That was Menasha Troy. She, her and her writing partner uh, wrote that. And uh, a season, or a show we'll see next season, which is The Game. I like, I like how one. we all just looked very <laughs> unsurprised at the toxic work environment moment that just happened. <laughs> right. Not our toxic work environment, of course, but right. Mr. Is Roddenberry's. Uh, so um, we already made... Uh, an allusion to this next fact, but uh, data for the very first time in Star Trek history exposes the exact date and time that Star Trek is taking place. So mm. he says it's the year by your calendar, 2364. And until this time, it always had just been referred to by the century. It's sometime within the century. And for the first time, we get an exact date. Um, and then the third point is this was the first episode to use a moving camera for visual effects sequences and that allowed them to film uh objects moving in relation to one another instead of using just stock images from their library so from this episode on we start seeing better uh visual effects of spaceships interacting with each other um and then probably the least surprising fact is the writers uh strike was still going on at this time they had a day and a half to put this script together. Um, the original idea was for this to be a two-part episode uh, in which the Romulans have to uh, join together with the Federation to fight the Borg. Um, because they couldn't, th that was all nixed because they didn't have enough time or the writers actually do a responsible job. So um, we lose all of that excitement, but we do keep, um, the the hints that are dropped to these uh, outposts that are, are and the way they're dealt with, um, we know now looking back exactly who did this. Uh, we had no idea this at the time yeah. um, because we hadn't met the Borg who were specifically written as an apology for the Ferengi that we had met earlier in the season. All right, so we have those four things out of the way. Let's unpack this episode. Uh, the neutral zone opens with the Enterprise waiting for Picard to get back from a meeting. They see some detritus floating by, but Zen Riker is uninterested in history, and he suggests that they just let it take its course. Uh, and this means hundreds of years of old ship will soon explode, but Data objects is allowed to beam over to the crusty old ship with Worf, who is baffled by a door. <laughs> that made me laugh so hard because 
One of my favorite things is to go into uh, that. This is going to sound weird. One of my favorite things is to go into a public restroom and <laughs> note the people who are stymied by whatever uh, the situation is, because if it is, uh, you know, hand contactless water, that's going to stymie some older people. And if it's yeah. an old fashioned you know, where you actually have to turn a knob. I have seen children stand there and just poke at it and push at it and prod at it, but never turn, never turn once. Uh, But I love, I love that he can't figure out how this door is going to work. And he pulls out the big guns. They give, they give Worf so many things to do that are just hilarious all the way through the series. And in this scene, they gave him several, like they beam over there. And then data confirms that there's oxygen. <laughs> like Worf standing right the fuck next to it. And data goes, oh, there's minimal oxygen. And Worf's like, oh, good. <laughs> you know? And then he can't figure out the door. It's just wonderful. I love all the old, like, the the signals that this is the, old, you know, the modern technology that was just coming online in 1988, like disk drives and and right. and automatic doors that these were all nods to the fact that like hey you know things are gonna get better more technology is happening you gotta open up the door with your hands these ancient <laughs> folk oh download this disk drive this ancient yeah. disk drive as they called it a keyboard how quaint. <laughs> I know. This actually, that you bring up a great point, Kara, because this episode feels so much like Star Trek Four to me. Like it, it was like, hey, people loved it. We need to end this uh, this season mm. on a banger. Let's just bring back some of those old timey tropey jokes that even the 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 moms of the '80s who may not be into Star Trek they would love these 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 type of things. All right, so uh, Worf and <laughs> the Data discovered three bodies that can be saved. There's several others that are uh, just too crusty and, and obviously dead, so they let them go. Uh, I just, and they... I, the moment the f- they, they find the lady first, and the moment they uncovered it was a lady, Eli <laughs> looked at me and says, Riker's going to want her bad. <laughs> <laughs> They didn't even have to reveal it. They let Worf show us it was a lady by how he looked. It's like he wiped it away and then took this long pause. I'm like, it's a chick. (laughs) I'm like, they gave him that direction. It was was super interesting. Uh, All right. So they take the bodies. They beam back over to the Enterprise uh, where Picard has returned and uh, tells them to immediately head for the neutral zone, which in 1988 was uh, a, a pretty clear allusion to either the DMZ, which still exists to this day, the Demilitarized Zone, 38th Parallel, uh, or the Iron Curtain, which at, at 1988 was still a thing. It was still about a year and a half away before that got torn down. Um, so a little bit of, uh, you know, current day in the past uh, tie-in. Um, was this and the then first time we- that... That neutral zone was mentioned. I, I I was not a original series watcher as much, but was it? I don't remember it being name I dropped don't at all. Call it being name dropped either. So this might be the first kind of conception of the, of the idea that there's these buffer zones between you know Klingon neutral zone and the and the Romulan neutral zone. Well, and it's interesting to me, like if you want to look at those two things in in the demilitarized zone, nobody lives there, right? And in and in right. the Iron Curtain, it's populated. And it's super interesting to me 
because I, I believe later on we find out that there are populated areas of the neutral zone. Am I, oh, yeah. am I right yep. about that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's super interesting to, to look at in, in that perspective. I hadn't really thought about that, Jimmy. Um, where was I? So, oh, we're off to the briefing room, and this is where we learn about the disappeared outposts. So, yes, we learn that these outposts that are either right on the neutral zone or maybe fudged within the neutral zone um, have disappeared. Um, we don't know exactly destroyed. how or what, just that something bad has happened to these outposts and they need to boogie on warp factor eight. They are going very fast. Very fast. They make that very clear. And when Picard stands in front of that window for an extended period of time, whilst things happen very quickly behind him in a star field. <laughs> can I, Jimmy, so can we lines. talk about the, the cryogenics a little bit? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, did Were you all aware of it before this? Like, I guess we were 12. I, I think I had just read... Uh, Orson Scott Card Worms, which talks about like the the living heads of history, kind of like Futurama did later, that kind of thing. But I I don't know that I was familiar with the idea at twelve that you could freeze someone and try and and fix them later. It was later I heard about Ted Williams and Disney and shit. Yeah, that's what I mean. I remember it being thought, talked about in the context of the urban legend around Walt Disney that he was cryogenically frozen, and that was talked about at least in my school uh when i was you know eight or ten and so i was aware awesome. of this idea you know and plus also i guess not like i was watching all of the alien films but there are is sci-fi that has been using this the frozen idea for a while and so uh that was was something i was aware of i think mm-hmm. was it was it frozen in alien or reanimated well, that idea that you're like slowing down your metabolism so that you can you know, oh right, more right, right. sleepy, right, more like hypersleep type, yeah. Which is now a, a huge trope. It's just in all kinds of sci-fi. I don't remember if this was a surprise to me back then. Um, yeah, I guess that's what I'm wondering. Yeah. Like, I don't remember if this was new to me, but I know that I'm still fascinated by it. Uh, by yeah, what, it's something by what I would make someone do it. Right. Well, and that some we'll get to a little bit later. Um, because we have reasons for some and not for others. And it's, uh, it's a very interesting talking point, I think. Uh, so um, right after we have our first uh, uh, meeting with among the staff, which is a great TNG trope of let's get together and talk, uh, we are uh, we were brisked away to, um, to the sick bay where Bev has reanimated our three uh, guests. Kate? I love, okay, I have many things to talk about here. Many things. <laughs> yes. But the first is that there's this lovely little, like, almost who's on first moment between Picard and Beverly where she's like, I have the frozen bodies. What frozen bodies? The bodies that are frozen. What, what do you mean the frozen bodies? You know, like, I have the bodies. What bodies? The frozen bodies. The frozen bodies? Yes, the bodies that were frozen. The frozen bodies that were frozen. What do you the mean the frozen bodies? There was the data bring over. I didn't it's know what data bring any over. It's so good. And, and it goes into this scene where like later when she wakes up and sees Worf, the music even goes all wacky schmacky, like almost yakety sax. Yes, <laughs> not yes. really. It sounds but, like the <laughs> murder she wrote theme song. Yes, yes. <laughs> but I, 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 I realize that I should cede my time, but I'm not going to. I no, not <laughs> I at all. Have 
questions about the fact that they can bring these bodies back to life after over 350 years and they are dead. They were donezo, but they can't bring Tasha back to life. Like, nope. what are the like? And I get like if they were cryogenically frozen right before they died, we could easily fix the things that were wrong with them. But you're just saying that we have the ability to resurrect. And right. yet they only let one person into Starfleet Academy per year. This is an issue. <laughs> Well, two things, Kate. One, they hadn't learned about the successful, uh, the sexual possibility of cryogenics until now. And two, Tasha quit. (laughs) (laughs) And three, they had the ability to cure diabetes, but they did not have the ability to cure I got suffocated by weird oil monster. But they were dead. They were dead. They were dead. Dead, dead. They were frozen after they died. Dead, dead, so. Yeah, but then CPR. (laughs) (laughs) I read about that, you know, kids in the ice. (laughs) All right, so. um, 300 years. (laughs) Data is then summoned to the sick bay to account for his actions. And this is one of the oddest moments, I think, in the episode, because Picard questions Data's logic for bringing the Frosties aboard. But he prefaces his questioning with, I would never question. (laughs) And then his whole point of being a little bit upset about them coming aboard is because it's just bad timing. And (laughs) and (laughs) the worst thing of all is, I mean, they were already dead. (laughs) What more could happen to them? This This is patently Un Star Trek, un Picard like. Like these lines were not written by the people who know this character. <laughs> I wrote down the line quote, they're alive now, and we're going to have to treat them as living human beings. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm like, well, yeah. Yeah, they you are. probably are. <laughs> I mean, it's already bad enough that Riker was like, look at that history, a living monument to it. Live and let live. YOLO, am I right? (laughs) I mean, but seriously, this is uh, piloted by a man who thought it was okay to make a weight loss bet if you want to be on the show. (laughs) So fair enough. There's limited understanding of how to actually talk or treat people. Um, it but is, really, it's like I mean, this, this existential thing, though, to be like, they're already dead. What what's what more could what, happen to them? What more could have happened it's exactly to them. what you want to hear it's, from an explorer. Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> Especially like, but now we know they're alive. By your logic, we would have never known this. Do you see the tragedy of what you're suggesting, Picard? Witness their tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, All right, so our first Frosty awakens and immediately faints upon seeing Worf. And as has already been brought up, uh, we know this is supposed to be funny because they play music to let us know that this was a laugh movie. I'm surprised she didn't go, whoa, brother. (laughs) (laughs) Little slide whistle at the end. <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. So we meet our three subplotters, and it's Sonny Clemens, a country musician, Ralph Offenhouse, the original Wolf of Wall Street, and Claire Raymond, a homemaker. 
which confuses Data as much as the door confused Worf, and he queries some form of construction worker, which uh, I think this line is a little bit like a spit take in that if you're a good comedian in the the moment presents itself, you have to take the spit take. But sometimes that spit take rarely is really funny. Most of the time, it's just something you do because the moment presented itself. And this line, like most spit takes, just fell flat. Uh, it wasn't funny. And, and more to the point, it, it just denotes, well, if the future is so wonderful, then shouldn't there be a lot of homemakers? Because you don't have to go out and earn a whole bunch of money because there isn't materialistic things. Uh, I, I think Data has a subroutine that requires him to identify anything he can as a literal meaning, thereby slowly teaching him about puns. It's canon. <laughs> it's a subroutine <laughs> that eventually will turn the, a question like this into, ah, a homemaker. I guess she must be a construction worker. Huh? <laughs> so you're saying... Uh, but right now, he, he's just learning to question it, and soon he'll learn that it's a pun. And eventually he'll have a subroutine routine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It does feel like a... Uh, you mentioned this was based on fan fiction. It feels like a like a, a hackney joke a little bit. Like, oh, like, hey, that's a joke. Hey, I always thought the homemaker was a weird term. Let's make a joke about that. And they're making the home. I get it. And it, you're right. It feels like a like a fourth grader wrote it. <laughs> well, and I do wonder if there's some sort of a like, oh, we're so advanced that n no one ever, of course, would have to do, you know, so it's it's <laughs> no one has to raise their children. It's shit. The future. <laughs> yeah. But it's... data is Google and uh, he would look up the word and it would be in his data banks. But, right. Uh, oh. You know, hooey. We'll just let him have his joke. <laughs> All right. So we head back to the bridge uh, where Picard is ticked off. He really is in just a sour mood this episode. Uh, and he assigns Riker babysitting duties of our uh, newly defrosted crewmates. And there's a bit of foreshadowing when he says, keep them out of my way. So we know somehow they're going to bumble their way into things. Yeah, Eric. I wanted to talk a little bit about the big 80s drugs are the devil vibes that happened when they tried to reanimate the uh, country music singer. And they're like, all of his major systems were dying yeah. and he must have hated life. Yes. Oh, well, you know, it looks like possible chemical thing. He hated life and yet was desperate to live. Oh, yeah. no. Oh, fuck it's, off. It's the you best like line ever. Smoke. It's the yeah. best line ever. Too afraid to live, too scared to die. Yes. Oh, oh, that's some good. Come on judgments. now, man! Yeah. Fortune cookie stuff right there. Was it's, it? It's just very just say no, Nancy Reagan shit right up in there. Was it Maurice Hurley that wrote this? Was he the one who also wrote the uh, the speech that that Denise Crosby does as Tasha Yar to Wesley? Oh, that'd Kershner? be so perfect. I don't remember, I but I hope so. Yeah. It's, got, like, it's got those same vibes, right? They're like, oh, we're going to have a lot of people watching this season finale, so we got to make sure we have some moralizing for the to be, church folks. To be folks. fair, at the end of this sentence, I'm going to toke. So, <laughs> um, I am a little frustrated with the writing in that particular moment. Thank you. It's just survival. We're not uh, talking about a need. We're talking about survival. I like um, in, in this scene that, that we've just transitioned into, Troy is talking with uh, 
Picard and she talks to him about not having very much information to give him and then gives him the most helpful information that she could possibly like, like a case study, uh, you know, from a forensics, you know, uh, pathologist, you know, like so good, so good. Uh, and, and yet, you know, she's just so modest. <laughs> yeah. She, what I wrote down was, uh, Troy gives us a Wikipedia breakdown of the Romulans. Uh, and it is, it's very, a succinct, and way better than any of the feelings that she shared about what's going on uh, and uber, uber helpful, like maybe the most useful uh, information she shared this season. And it's what Picard acts on, yeah. you know, the whole second half of this episode. He's he's basically thinking of her advice the entire time that like they're yeah, waiting the counterpunch. They're waiting to counterpunch. And I'm not going to yeah. despite what Riker and Worf are telling me to do. I'm not going to I'm not going to make that first move. What a counselor. But a counselor, <laughs> not a shrink. <laughs> uh, all right, so um, we get to see a little budding buddy picture with Sunny and Data, or is it Sunny Data? Androids and accents? I don't know. There's a show here between these two guys. Uh, <laughs> it's it's Sun slash you you mix Sunny and Data, but with a slash, with a slash and it's Sun one. and then Ada, and it's pronounced Sonata. Sonata. Ah. <laughs> It's always sunny and data. So Sunny orders a martini um, and you even get a little steel guitar riff when he drinks it. So another over the head use of the music in this episode. Uh, and Sunny learns that TV didn't make it past 2040. Excuse me. TV. TV. The TV. <laughs> TV. The TV doesn't make it past uh, sunny uh, 2040. And then Sunny ponders, what do you do without a TV? And once I saw it, I was like, well, they do have holodecks that are prone to breaking down in very deadly ways. And there's also harp porn. <laughs> so you do have a lot to look forward to, Sunny. There's Parisi squares that you could be playing as, a, as an athlete out there. Laser whips. Laser whips. This is the future, man. You can do whatever you want. I love that those are his only two things. Is watching the Braves lose on TV, which I love that reference. Uh, but and and nothing else. He's like, I got. What do you do? There's no other oh, options. Oh, I mean, he does want to go find a low mileage pit woofy. <laughs> yeah, can, right. what, what? I looked it up. I looked it and up. Oh no, I know exactly build what a, a low memory. mileage. I know exactly Tell what it Eric. means. It's terrifying. A low mileage pit woofy is a dog of a girl who hasn't had much experience and will give them something to look back on. It's what? a terrible, terrible misogynistic yeah. uh, thing that in the South would have passed. Yeah. It's it's like the play dog fight. What I don't. Like, that's exactly what he's saying. What I don't know about that is why Riker doesn't recognize that term. Exactly. I wrote that down. I'm like, Riker knows exactly what a low mileage pit woofy is. Uh, well, the, the, the Googles have a, a nicer way of explaining it, Eric. And it's. All right. uh, well, I'm from there. It's a country music <laughs> euphemism for a young, fairly naive band groupie. Yes. None of that is uh, in antithesis to what you said, but it, it sounds nicer, anyways. Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't. Woofy it doesn't. means that, in addition, I'm sure, to the subwoofer, but it all refers back to the whole thing. 
Yeah, they said the Woofy was the people who were the closest to the band, and they were the Barker, so the people who called out, which was another again, not actually arguing being, with your they're description. They're being very nice, but they're being uh, they're cleaning up the language. Yeah. And here I thought it had to do with wolves that liked peach pits. I thought that it was just a wholesome thing. No, no. Most of most of the real, uh, you know, folksy shit I grew up around has has pretty dark, uh, older connotations. However, it's used now. Ugh, Sonny Clemens, come on! Yeah, you're supposed to be a good guy. Because I did like uh, the buddy okay. cop thing that they got going on. Like, they, yeah, they, they, totally like they had the, the report. He called him out. He's like, you want to hang out with the I, android? I hate to be the one to let you know that some guys are really shitty. <laughs> <laughs> you mean country music stars? Like the, the guy who wrote the, the number one country song <laughs> might be kind of shitty too. Yeah. I'm going to get you. <laughs> You're going to love me. <laughs> All right, so we're back to another meeting. Uh, and that's where we learned that it's been 53 years, seven months, and 18 days. That's exactly how long since the last uh, contact with the Romulans. Uh, and data posits this means that the info the Fed has about them is out of date. And Riker follows up immediately saying that it must be true. Or they don't have, they don't know any more about us then. That, that's what it means. If we don't know anything about them, they can't know anything about us, which is exactly the opposite <laughs> correct understanding of the flow of information. <laughs> because just because you don't know something about a person doesn't mean they don't know anything about you as well. So uh, it's the toddler, you can't see me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it totally, it just another a bad bit of writing that somebody thought might be clever, but it really just had no logic to what was being said. I always think of that Douglas Adams joke where the, uh, I forget the name of the monster, but it was this terrible monster that is so incredibly stupid that if you put a towel over your head, it will assume that if you can't see it, that it can't see you. <laughs> right. <laughs> So, yeah, well, the the whole tension throughout this whole thing, all of these conference room things, like it does really ramp up the idea that like this sh everybody's on edge. And then they start to talk about that, how the entire crew is starting to get a little bit frazzled from this mission. Right. And that's so immediate in this scene. What I, I didn't think that was very shocking that, you know, he, he he didn't he doesn't really know what's going on. What I thought was shocking was. His stance is, he and Worf, which isn't that surprising, is we need to strike first. We need to be ready to go. And they're ready to go um, to what they say is a confrontation based on, at best, um, circumstantial evidence that bases are disappeared. They have no idea who did it. And they have no evidence at all who could have been responsible for this. Here, you know, hitherto, unknown technology like th this is something like it's just gone no evidence of it even being there and what they're talking about is not a confrontation it's an all-out war um so like to say that they just want to test us they want to see how far we've come you don't obliterate civilizations because you want to test somebody else that that's a all-out act of war right well I mean, you're making a lot of dangerous assumptions yeah i mean this is huge that they're like they, they, they just want to see if we're we got the metal to hang with him. It's like, 
you don't do that by destroying entire civilizations or, you know, on a planet. That, that It goes beyond a confrontation. Then. Um, and then, of course, it's Data who brings it all back. He was like, it's a good idea if he's right. Right. If the assumption is that they're hostile, then right. all this makes perfect sense. But what if they're right. not? Right. Exactly. Right. And I agree with Jordy's line there, too, where he's like, if you know, if it's not hostile, what is it? What are, what are they rushing to just the same way that we're rushing to? And I think that's the important piece of information that the Federation doesn't know is that Romulan outposts were just as wiped out as, right. as the Federations were. And that changes everything. Right. We have no idea. We didn't even have an idea at this point that the Romulans were rushing to it. At, at, at this moment in the show, it's just Federation. As far as we know, it's just Federation planets. It, it, the Romulans don't play into it other than, you know, the TV guy told us the Romulans were going to appear at some point. Um, Jimmy, do you then know, can I ask you something, Jimmy? Because you yeah. you're, I've seen more uh, original series than I have. How... What is is the event that they're referring to fifty years ago? That doesn't that isn't dramatized in the original. Series, I don't think it? it does. I don't remember the Romulans from TOS. It was the Klingons were the the bad guys, and you didn't need another bad guy. You had the Klingons, and you had Khan, and mm. then you know Spock's older brother in the worst Star Trek movie ever. <laughs> so, so the so Star Trek fans at this time wouldn't have. Any knowledge of what the, who the Romulans were? No, or when I did were, They were. Vulcan. I mean, I had read a couple of books, the Star Trek novels, so I, I had a, a pretty good understanding about the Romulans and how they split from the Vulcan race and why mm. they split and went off to another world and what made the two races different and really sort of antagonistic toward each other. But it, that has never been addressed in the actual Star Trek universe. Um, in terms of the movies or TV shows. So it's, I get, what do they call that? The uh, apocryphal? It's, it's the stuff that exists in the parallel, but isn't a part of this. So, it's no. just as canon as fan fiction. <laughs> right. right. Uh, so, you know, Riker's plan is just based on a feeling, <laughs> not on any evidence. Um, and then, you know, the, we get ambushed here. Like the, the Offenhouse ambushes everything. Um, and then our, our, our three visitors each get their own kind of scene where now one after another, we get to see a bit of them. And the first one is with Offenhouse, who kind of has a very confrontational moment with Picard. Um, and then we'll go to see Troy with, uh, Claire. And then we get to see more of the, the data sunny show. Yeah. Um, yeah and it's the but, scene where, where, where he, does the comms and uh, talks to yeah. the Picard in the middle of the conference. That is perhaps what, you know, Kate was referring to as being like the thing that makes you hate him the most that like rich person saying that I need to have my, my right. uh, soup needs to be hotter. And this is ridiculous that it's not hot right. right now. Like that was what he was throwing around right there. Yeah, it totally was. And, and Kate, I want to hear what you have to say about this. I, I mean, we have a back and forth between them. He's very uh, arrogant and demeaning. But my take is, so is Picard. Uh, I want to get what you well, think about this scene. Yes, in f he he is uh, Picard is also is. But in fairness, he has just been summoned, you know, summarily summoned there by somebody yep. who has no right to be on the comms whatsoever. And right. I am more amazed by the lack of security, which Picard sort of 
talks about. He basically says we have no need for it because people know how to control their impulses <laughs> more and or less. Um, but just how easy it is for him. And yes, we see every week that that's not true. Um, so I'm surprised uh, also that it's so easy to just uh, stumble their way very blindly into it by just sort of saying, right. I want to talk to the captain. If there was a computer that could help me talk to the captain. Oh, I'm talking to a computer. That would be helpful. Um, but he gives this beautiful, basically greed is good speech that is just the like epitome of just privilege and wealth yeah. and it's just so nauseating and I don't blame Picard one bit for being salty with him because uh, I wanted to drive the the butt of my um, hand right up into the soft part of right. his cartilage um, yeah he's uh, and just just the the uh, yeah I can't I can't I can't I can't even I with can't. this guy Eric yeah, I mean, I feel like we as Gen Xers, part of the reason we're so fucking cynical is that we know these guys are the villains and we grew up with these guys being the villains and then we watched them all win for 30 years <laughs> and, and not hide it at all. Like an entire mm -hmm. generation of people saw the greed is good speech and went, oh, yeah, we'll do that. And everybody just kind of went, well, yeah, of course they will. There's a lot of money there and nobody's going to get caught. So like watching this guy is for me kind of conflicting like i think it's an incredible character incredibly well played it's just that they gave him too much of a point he's completely wrong he's a complete asshole yeah but he's such a good actor that he brings humanity to all this stuff and that unrealistic apology comes across as realistic because this actor can pull it off but that character would never have backed down and apologized and, and been to Picard like, hey, I'm just I, I don't I, I don't understand. I'm going through something <laughs> like that is not how that character moves through the world. Um, You're but, completely you know, right, Ralph, Eric. You're completely Ralph, right. <laughs> Ralph yep. is right, though, that if it was super duper important, Picard wouldn't have showed up. He just sent someone else. So, like, I get why yes. he keeps talking. Yes. And that's my point. This whole subplot with these three guys is more below decks than it is Star Trek The Next Generation, because there's hundreds of people on this ship. Certainly, there could have been one person who could have been totally dedicated to helping these poor souls reacclimate to the very traumatic thing of waking up 350 years later and having no idea where you fit into a brand new society, how much has changed, how much you're different, that you're alien to all these people now, and they're just left hanging. And of course, there's something way more important going on, but not for everybody on that ship. There's people on this ship who have time to deal with these people. They're not dealing with the Romulans. They're not a part of the, the command decision. So, yeah, like you said, Picard wouldn't go there because there'd be somebody qualified to help these people. And they were totally ignored and abandoned in this episode. I mean, not totally. Troy's finally sent to them to, to help. Right. Um, it's actually it's but, Riker's fault because Picard delegates to him. He's like, he Riker, you deal with them. And that I would imply right. being able to order other people to take care of it, not have right. Riker have to manage them himself. But he doesn't do that. <laughs> right. He just leaves them there. And so my point is, why leave them? Not, you know, not like you have to throw them in the brig or something, but like why leave them in an area where there is shit that they can get into? Uh, there's got to be parts of the ship that don't have a you know a console right. like that, or hey, maybe program the computer to like 
you know, ease up on the, the commands from here. But no, that's never even thought of by Riker. And so yeah. he's too busy wanting to get into a fight that he yeah. screws up this whole situation. Or a holodeck training program that's like, hey, you just woke up 350 years later. Here's what you missed. And we, <laughs> and we could, there's three holodecks. So you could put, put one guy in freaking Atlantis. Right. We can watch the Braves. Put the, you know, put everything. Yeah. The woman in New Jersey, because I think that's where she's from. Paramus, New right. Jersey. And then, uh, you know, Paramus. have them be that, in That's a brilliant point. Lying to them until the Romulan thing is done. And then when you're at it, you're like, okay, now we can go talk to the popsicles and let them know. <laughs> what the world is like now <laughs> i love that you give them like three three nicknames at this point the frosties the popsicles yeah uh so we we've had um we've had the moment with ralph uh and then we have a moment with claire um and that starts with her breaking down finally uh picard offering some measure of solace to her and then <laughs> immediately tell it Troy, you know keep these people under control and and then so Troy spends a little bit of time with the wife and here where I think is a, a fantastic storyline that uh, really was just kind of glossed over is, I mean, this woman was abused like she had no decision about what's happened to her. Mm. She just wakes up and she has, why am I alive? How did I die? And what the fuck happened? And we find out that, you know, it was probably her husband. And at first she makes light of it like. You know, if it was something dumb and that was going to be a failure, my husband probably bought it. And then we learned, you know, like he couldn't live without her. So he did some crazy thing that maybe he could be with her again one day. And, you know, 350 years later, she's utterly alone. Like, I mean, these other people knew what was going to happen. So they wake up and they're they're responsible for their actions. They like there's some degree of like, this is what you wanted. Um, and she doesn't have that at all. And that's a that's a really cool sci fi storyline you know you wake up 350 years later you don't want to be here mm. how do you deal with the world you don't want to be in and especially because her death was sudden there was no lead up to it either there was no sort of right, i'm sick right. and i'm gonna die and this is a discussion that we have been having but we didn't make that you know we can't decide whether we're gonna do it or not it's just i'm sorry i died in the first place full stop really that's all that's i gotta process that much let me process that much. <laughs> right. And then right. there's an aneurysm that she died of, right? So yeah. again, the logistics of how she died and then they froze her immediately. Look, don't worry about it. Yeah. yeah don't worry about it too much. Beverly fixed all that brain damage. She just put it back together. She couldn't do it for, for Tasha. Yeah. That's, she couldn't do that. So then, uh, so then Troy goes into Ancestry.com and finds out <laughs> everything That's that right. she needs to know about right. uh, this woman's family history. Well, I find it very funny that she's like, how could that, how could that person look like my husband? I'm like, I mean, by, by, the, by the 80s, we, we knew about DNA and, it, <laughs> and, and that children looked like parents and shit, right? Like... I had certainly seen pictures of giant no chin having Irish fuckers that looked just like me from the 1800s. So like, I I understood how it worked. She was very baffled. Uh, okay, if and then our last scene with these guys is uh, Sonny trying to beg some drugs off of Beverly, and we have another very misogynist, disturbing moment here, uh, where he he slaps. 
He did uh, not just Dr. touch her butt. Crusher he did not just touch ass. her butt. He totally touched her butt. He touched her butt. And she laughs it off. She oh, does that boy, howdy. Sad. And, you know, knowing what's happening, to me, I took that as an actress being like, this is why I'm leaving the show. Like, the line was like, this, this is why I'm leaving. Yeah. Um, because it was very like, why do I have to put up with this shit? Um, you know, and this is just... It, 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 it speaks to this culture that we were in in 1988 where, the, you know, they thought this was okay. That's, this was supposed to be a cute little joke to endear us to this character. Uh, and we look at this now and like, this is wildly inappropriate. It's, and it's played for laughs too. Like as Kate yeah. said, yeah. like it's not, it's not meant to be a commentary on anything. It just supposed to be a ha ha ha, much obliged, says Beverly. Right. Country scoundrel, rascal. <laughs> uh, but so, that is the scene where he says he needs to drink in order to survive. <laughs> or he needs some a little pick me up in the morning to get me up, and a you know a downer to yeah. get him down at night. And I'm like, okay, so it's it's coffee in the morning and other things in the evening. I I, I all right, I see I see what you're saying, Sonny Clements. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm if I'm being honest. <laughs> So, guys, what do you think about these three characters? I mean, specifically, what do you think they, what's the value they bring to this episode? Oh, zero, and I love them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with Kate. That's, I think, puts a button on it. Because <laughs> uh, I couldn't disagree. I mean, it, they bring zero value to this episode, but they're fun. <laughs> and if they had more to say about the Romulans, they wouldn't have waited until 55 minutes into the episode to show us to them. This is one of those uh, so, ones where I'm not sure which one's the B plot, right? Like it, it I, you could say that the Romulans are, but they do, they don't get that much screen time. It's actually the the three you know B plotters that get all this uh, this screen time. Yeah. So it's it's I think the writing of this episode is a little bit muddied in that regard. But I don't think either plot would work well without the other. I think. Well, and the last time we saw the Romulans. Uh, you know, in the original series, there was a battle and, and the Romulan ship was destroyed and all that kind of stuff. So this nothing happens. It's, they talk about stuff that happened off screen. So like plot wise, you're right. There's nothing happens once they save the, uh, the people off the satellite looking little shuttle they were in. Right. And that climax scene, which we, we haven't gotten to yet, but I, it's almost like, wait, was that was that was that the climax? <laughs> All right, yeah, so let's breeze through some of these latter points. So we, we do get another moment with Sonny and Data where he wants to throw a big shindig and then he has to go off and he has his little Southern charm where he alludes like his understanding of, oh, they're not going to come to our party, are they? No, that would be inappropriate. Um, and then uh, we're on the bridge, and this is actually where we first find out that uh, how these bases have disappeared, that they have disappeared. Um, before it was just speculation, something's happened. We get here now, and then that's where um, Worf says it's like they were scooped away. Um, and so we're getting a little bit more information. Then you go to Terra 9, uh, another um, uh, a bit outpost that has been uh, scooped away. And we have a, a, an interesting debate here about whether to go uh, to Red Alert or not. And then there's a nice diplomatic compromise uh, where they settle on yellow as the alert that they should uh, they should go to. Um, and then this is where uh, Offenhouse, he stumbles up to the bridge. Like he just, has an argument. How? Stumbles up. 
How? He just and he he literally bumbles in the the turbo lift about take me uh where is the cap the captain is on the bridge and then they just go and again Jimmy, I have. Oh, go ahead. oh, just security issues, right? Like, yes, we can talk about how we're so evolved past this, but we know we're not. The, the The ship has already been overtaken multiple times by multiple people, sometimes people that they brought on board and they forgot to, like, look at their costumes and see what they had on them. And when there's no security to get up to the bridge. Smart, smart 24th century. Come on. Well, I want to ask Jimmy something that I feel like he's definitely already considered on his own. I've never looked up the schematics for the Enterprise, but doesn't this kind of seem like only something a Wonka Vader could do? Mm. <laughs> like, no matter where you get on it, on the ship, it can just take you to the bridge? Like, don't you feel nice. like the functions... Of the, the on-ship elevators bear a striking resemblance. Up ways and sideways and long ways and round ways. <laughs> I kind of think so. Uh, okay. So now we're on the bridge and we finally get to meet the Romulans. And a, a really odd thing happens, though, because we have some exchange. And then um, and then Offenhouse uh, makes his presence known which, of course, pisses off the crew. He is, uh, Picard demands security take him off of the bridge. But then <laughs> somebody yells captain, which must be a safe word for the security officers because they immediately stop. And they do not continue to apprehend this guy until the very end when everything is done. Uh, so now we know you can get to the captain just by asking where he is. And if you want security to stop what they're doing, you just say captain. And they'll freeze in their tracks. Uh, and then we get uh, the long awaited Romulan introduction. Now, let's I, I, I know we're going fast. I don't want to gloss over that. What I do think to be a really lovely tense moment before often not Pfeffer mm -hmm. uh, fucks <laughs> things up um, where they know they're there and he's getting such intense peer pressure to shoot first. And they right, there yes. begins to be that shimmer, you know, and we're only going to get this opportunity to do it. And he doesn't like if that's a bold moment. It's a bold moment where uh, Picard stands firm and then we get the payoff of getting the, you know, yeah. he, his gambit proved correct. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Kate, because that was what uh, Greg had alluded to earlier. That was a counterpunch. That, that was a whole payoff to the Troy Picard moment there right. was he was he wasn't going to put them in a position for a counterpunch. Uh, in a big moment. Yeah. Um, and then when Oppenheimer comes in, he's the, he starts spouting off opinions uh, about what's happening. Right. Like he's at the negotiation table and I've, you know, I've argued for right. the takeovers of companies worth billions of dollars. And I know fucking asshole. they have no idea and this what's is happening. after he's apologized. Right. And I like that it, Riker at one point says, you're out of line, mister. Mister. <laughs> mister. Well, that'll this? show him. Does the does the viewfinder and the audio cut off? Like, does it know? Like, we don't want the Romulans to see this. That's really a breakdown in command. Like, <laughs> well, I thought about that too. There's got to be someone like <laughs> clicking a button. 
because you can see their their whole body language turns and goes up and you know goes and goes down right. so like even if the romulans were only getting picture they're still being like what the fuck's going on on that bridge yeah these guys they don't have Wait, did they just freeze somebody out of a satellite <laughs> <laughs> um and then we had some nice little sci-fi stuff there where they were trying to find the cloaked ship there was energy distortions and this is all stuff i dig about sci-fi when they start bringing in these little these terms that mean nothing but mean everything right uh and, it, and it, then it, it evokes like uh the submarine warfare like that idea yeah. that like that these are ships yeah. in space and they have to like do a him. ping or one ping only please like it kind of has that <laughs> feel to it ping, <laughs> uh and then uh the ship uncloaks and it's an impressive ship it's it's just as big if not bigger than enterprise well the size doesn't um, and it's a bird of prey and it's interesting because uh, the names are kind of interchangeable between Klingon ships and Romulan ships because the Klingon ships are the uh, warbirds or is it the Romulans that are warbirds and birds of prey? But it, they go back and forth. And it's, yeah, it's the second one. It's not a mistake either, Eric, because it's they actually switched out um, the ships when they were doing an episode because they didn't like the ship they had, uh, they had written a ship for the Romulans, but they didn't like the ship that they had for the Klingons in the episode, so they gave them the ship. So they actually write dialogue that uh, sort of explained why the ships kind of look alike and why the names are kind of the same. Oh, that's super cool. Interesting. Um, yeah, this ship looks so good in this digital remaster. Like, you can tell mm -hmm. that they invested a lot to make it look as impressive because you're like, whoa, it's got green you can see the lights of like where the, the quarters are like kind of in the front of the ship uh it looks it looks really impressive and you can see the person working in the background which i don't remember from before like behind the two romulan the commander so commander there's somebody with a view screen way in the back and they're just some you know central casting extra worker who's like really doing their job <laughs> it's like the news desk where you're like there's yeah. people typing back there <laughs> They don't know it, but I'm saving the world right now. <laughs> I'm playing uh, Minesweeper. We have a really interesting moment. I'm oh, sorry, Greg. What were you saying? I'm playing Minesweeper right now. I'm totally saving the world. <laughs> uh, we have a, uh, a really great moment with Worf. Worf gets a, a little emotional. Um, and this is absolutely would have been Tasha's line. If she was still in the show, Tasha would have said those very words. Changed to fit her background, but she was gone. So they threw him over to, to Worf. And... It, it was, it seemed uncharacteristic for him to kind of lose his mind there. And he gets immediately scolded by Picard and a seething long look from Riker, who gives him that long, hard look and then slowly turns around while still having his head pointed towards him before he fully turns around. Like, you just embarrassed me. <laughs> I spent way too long thinking about the fact that Riker didn't have to do that. I'm like, dude, this was a perfect example of a time where you can keep the look and give him a little encouraging nod. Like, dude, he's talking about the death of his parents. Like, he's going to do it. Give him the look if you want to give him the look, but don't, like, you don't got it. Come on, Will. Come on. The second in command, right. The XO has got to be like, no, it's, you just got dressed down by the captain, but well, I got your back. You're, and, you know, yeah. especially since they've been on the same side about like wanting to attack these Romulans the whole time. Yeah. It definitely felt like an exposition line where like, these are the bastards who, what did kill my parents? <laughs> what did? <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So we have the long exchange between the Romulans and it, uh, it ends what I think is the entirely unearned line 
we're back. What do you guys Ugh. think? What do you think about this line? Ugh. Not about their performances, about this line that is delivered. Did did it work for you? Do you think it was earned? I would like to defer to Kate because I want more of no, the sounds that were forced from her. No, it's her. more just that when the scene started, I wrote down the Romulans are like, guess who's back, bitches? And then literally <laughs> like four <laughs> lines later, he just literally said, we're back. <laughs> it's like, okay, I guess we're being very clear about what's happening. I I got the email that Jimmy was already upset with it before I got to that moment. So I was waiting for it very excitedly. Uh, And I'm happy to report that I disagree completely. Uh, Not necessarily with that line. That's pretty weak shit. But the, the scene building up to it, I just sat there in kind of joy and pain because I, I just heard myself talking to every like dungeon master I ever was in front of in junior high. Like this was meeting a stranger and negotiating. So it was kind of you meeting the big bad who is now going to withdraw. And you're going to, you know, you're going to fight later. So I love the scene until then. Yeah. I'm going to disagree fully and say, I like the whole scene and I like that line. Um, maybe because I remember being a kid and this was the season finale and I definitely had that moment of tension like leading up to it and then that felt more finale like than anything else in this episode like that feels like the the mm. big like okay here's going to be the next phase of storytelling is going to involve these two we of course know that it doesn't but th- that that propelled me into the summer and being like oh man I, I can't wait to see how they're going to use this or how they're going to uh, uh, propel the story into these you know this 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 tension moment um i also loved your dnd comparison eric because this has that whole idea where they're talking they're ta- especially those last few lines that the romulans are leading up to they're using big words they're communicating kind of obliquely and then they just have to be like okay these players that i'm talking to aren't getting it so let me just tell you so that you're absolutely yeah. clear <laughs> we're gonna fuck with you from now on but not right now peace we're out of here and you're like as a dungeon master sometimes you have to be that clear because they are wait what did they say are are they really threatening us i'm like yes they're really threatening you (laughs) and i feel like that they the uh, the writing just underlines it and lets it kind of go away from there and jimmy i was gonna say i for me i think it might also be the one-two punch of guess who's back and then (laughs) uh, and then picard saying i think our lives just became a lot more complicated which uh, is just tying it up with a little bow and then putting it in a tiny box that's in a slightly bigger box that's in a slightly bigger box and then it's in a slightly (laughs) bigger box ad infinitum. Uh, Yeah, and I think I would have been more uh, inclined to agree with the impact of that line had it not come so late in the episode with so little impact on what happen in if so i mean really there's no resolution i mean there's literally no resolution they don't learn any more about what happened what brought them there it just ends it's like they got done they're like oh we actually hit our four thousand words we're done um because and i i when i was watching it the other night i was like wait a minute we're just meeting the romulans and and i hit pause like there's like six minutes left like it's over. This is the season finale. It did for me. It was very unseason finale. Um, 
And that's what really made that fall flat. It was like, you're back. And then I just started thinking about all the stuff that happened later. I was like, really? You're back? Because in like 50 years, your whole planet's going to blow up and you won't have a home world. So you're back. That's only in one timeline. The other timeline, it's totally Vulcan that blows <laughs> oh, up. Oh, it doesn't so. go that way. Right. Uh, all right. So <laughs> we have that. They go on. Uh, we, you know, we don't have any kind of resolution to the main storyline. And then our B plot with our uh, three popsicles is wrapped up. Um, they can take him really, to a star base to cut, you know, hours. Well, off not even a star base. They were gonna. They decide not to do the star base. They're gonna send him to the star base. Would have been five days, and then they're a beeline to uh, Earth. Picard's like, no, 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 no. We can't do that. Uh, we're just gonna give him to the Charleston, and they can take their sweet time. Uh, it'll do them good. But before that, we get uh, a really interesting offer from Sonny to have uh, Data join him. Uh, back on Earth as a country star. And this is, you know, an interesting thing of like, well, Data can live longer, can can make other choices. And I'm just curious, have any of you ever thought like, what might Data do if he, you know, with this, this long life? Not only have I thought of it, I think by this point, certainly Data has thought of it. Data's a very smart dude and yeah. Data knows that he's functionally immortal. So like yeah. when he hears an offer like this, this is so much different than what he's doing now, clearly. And he knows that he's not going to be in Starfleet forever. He knows Starfleet's probably not even going to be around as long as him. So this whole idea, like, I think he knows he's eventually going to be a performing artist of some sort. Like he certainly wants to be human enough to pursue something like that. Yeah. I think he'll have every job. And he's going to pick up the banjo. Yeah. Yeah, do a whole crooners album, maybe. I mean, he, he does <laughs> violin, right? Why not banjo? I love uh, And if you haven't that... heard the Brent Spiner crooner album, do yourself a favor and go pick it up because it is I'm on really it. I good. love his 1776. <laughs> what happens off screen, dude? That's what I want to know is like, there's, they're going to be on the ship for a few days here. Like, there's there's more to, to come in this off scene, uh, off season. So let's, let's have some fanfic and re-engage fans. Hello, what, what is... <laughs> What kind of mischief do the do the Oppenhaus and and Claire and and Clemens get up with the last five days that they're on the Enterprise? Oh, I think they finally throw that party. Yeah, For I sure. want a party scene. We haven't had one since Menage à Troy. And who's not going to be invited? That's the interesting one because Sonny don't like everybody. <laughs> well, not Doctor Crusher because she's not going to bring the drugs that he wants. We just need to keep the girl in the scant uniform away from Sonny Clemens. Can we all agree on that? Sonny Clemens belongs in the brig. That's right. Uh, okay, so that was a long one. Uh, apropos to a season finale, let's go around the horn and get your final thoughts. Kate, uh, what do you think and what do you give it in terms of a rating? It's so hard because you asked the perfect question midway through this, which is, do do these three characters bring anything to this to to the, this episode or to the series? And the answer is no. And yet I love them. Um, but as far as a, a series finale go or a, a season finale go, I should say, it just mm. doesn't quite cut it. It doesn't have that right. Um, that right feeling of oomph, even the sort of like word of warning that we're going to have something in the future. It just doesn't quite, uh, it feels like conspiracy should have been the end of the, the season, right? Like where a, the big baddie of the, 
of the what's going to happen and the conspiracy of behind all that. So yeah, uh, long story short, too late. Um, I'm going to give it, I guess, five don't touch my butts. Um, <laughs> yes. Greg, what about you? I see all the flaws uh, that you guys have been talking about, but I unequivocally love this episode. I think it feels very close to uh, Star Trek Four, as I said, bringing those comparisons to real world uh, to this universe is something that I just enjoy. Um, I love the tension of the Romulans kind of ramping up uh, all of that while having the, you know, the somewhat comedic appearances by these three Frosties um, be the offset to it. Um, there's a lot of great scenes. I give it, uh, you know, nine dead Frosties uh, <laughs> um, for all, for all those reasons. And I don't. I, I, we we talk about it as a season finale, but it doesn't really like that whole trope of having this type of television end on a banger. Uh, really was new, right? I mean, with Jr. being shot, probably is the the one big thing uh, in this era where mm-hmm. it was held over an entire. Uh, season, so I think in some ways they're reacting uh, to that and trying to have some type of uh, climax written, but they didn't prepare for it. And in future seasons for for next generation, they do. Um, also, this feels, and I I don't know if it's possible to look up sweeps weeks from 1988, but this feels like a sweeps week episode in that they were trying to get all audiences to finally watch the show and get as many people looking at it. Uh, Cause it's got the Romulan stuff that you're going to love. It's got the comedic angles and all these guest stars that you recognize from all these other shows. Please watch this show uh, as much as you can, because we're trying to sell ads and that that's this, this feeling a lot too, but despite all of it, it really works for me. All right, Eric. I give it seven frozen Walt Disney heads. <laughs> I agree with you, Greg. I quite like it. Um, it's fucking weird. And I found myself just smiling all the way through because it was one that I really remembered. So when they first showed him uh, looking at the the first capsule and wiping it away and finding a skeleton, I'm like, oh. I remember every second of this episode. I'm like, let's get to the country guy. All right, come on. Let's get to the Gordon Gecko clone. I want to see it. Let's bring it. And uh, kind of as it went through, I, I enjoyed myself. I, I don't do what we do on this while I watch. Like, I love getting together with my funny Gen X friends and tearing it apart. Uh, mm. kind of for logic holes and just to have a fun time discussing why someone might have told the story this way. But when I'm watching it, and especially one like this that really had pretty good effects and really good acting and, you know, uh, just fun, I I get pulled into it and I, I had a great time watching this. So seven uh, frozen racist Walt Disney heads. Nice. Uh, all right, so I'll give it uh, four birds of prey. Uh, one of my favorite parts was seeing uh, that big ship show up. I think that uh, I like the episode more after hearing you guys talk about what you liked about it um, than uh, I did watching it. Because unlike Eric, when I'm watching anything, I can't help but uh, those things jumping in and taking over my mind. So I'm not always sucked in. And uh, I can be an Eeyore in the moment as I watch it. And I think the big thing that really uh, soured it for me was the gravita 
of what they went to discover seems to go away when the scene ends. Um, and it's just like not talking about Tasha in the next episode. The, the, they discovered something horrific. You know, millions, maybe tens of millions of people have disappeared and uh, they're fine with just walking away from that and going on to the to the next mission. And, and that, uh, that's just the lazy i think <laughs> lazy writing um and so it's just it doesn't live up to what they're gonna do like and they never do that again they never introduce a story that they just kind of drop right away um and i think it's because they learned like that wasn't satisfactory um but i'm about to wet my pants so i think we have to uh wrap that up this is the last episode of re-engage of season one and uh i can't speak for everybody but i look forward to meeting these three people uh in the coming episodes and diving further and further into the canon of tng you're here thanks so much for listening guys you want to say anything i would like to thank you for not speaking for me (laughs) <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> and now I'm getting the shifting uh, body language of back and forth I'm like oh that's what's going on with Jimmy <laughs> Jimmy go get your pants wet <laughs> I'm going to stop recording thanks for being with us on the bridge for this episode of re-engage next week we're continuing in our mission with the next episode of Star Trek the next generation Follow Reengage on Instagram and Twitter at ReengageTNG to get updates on episodes, drops, and all kinds of fun Star Trek shenanigans. Follow Kate Yeager at Yeagerlicious on Twitter and Insta. Eric is a dummy, and he can be found on at Eric Falls Down on Twitter and Insta. Jimmy G reads whatever is put in front of him. You can find him at the Jimmy G on Insta. Greg Tito is at Greg Tito, all one word, on Twitter, and at Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. Reengage is edited and mixed by the lovely Krista Curry. Logo artwork is by Mojo Jojo underscore 97 on Twitter or Mojo97.com. Our theme music is by Ryan Marth. Thanks for listening. Stand by for the saucer section to reengage. <laughs>